Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Okay, hello. Today's interviewee truly gave me a run for my money, not because he was trying to be a pain in the butt, at least I, I don't think so, but because he really resists giving overly simplified answers and because, as you will hear, he's in the habit of asking people questions about what is really behind their questions. Again, I really don't think this was him trying to be difficult. I think it's that he's trying to model how to actually listen to other people, how to be attuned, or in other words, how to be a functioning human. Part of his job, as you will hear him admit, and these are my words, not his, is to teach his patients how to be human. And while most of us will never actually be patients of Dr. Jacob Hom, just listening to him, I believe, will help you do life better. We're gonna talk about some fascinating stuff today with Dr. Hom, who is a legendary therapist, including what he says may be the most important thing he has discovered as a therapist, why he shuts down his clients' attempts to intellectualize their experiences, Kairos versus Kronos. Those may sound like Marvel characters, but they're actually Greek terms for our relationship to time. Speaking of Marvel, though, we are going to talk to Dr. Hom about why he says the Incredible Hulk is so important to him. We also talk about the concept of mentalization, which is the ability to understand the mental states of the people around you and your own. And he'll explain why this is a skill that, for many of his patients, needs to be reawakened. We'll also touch on what it means to love exquisitely, that's his term, what he means by the word love, and whether or not we have to learn to love ourselves before we can learn to love other people. Dr. Hom is the director of the Center for Child Trauma and Resilience and clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He treats children, young adults, adults, and families across the age range for a variety of issues. Today, we're talking to Dr. Hom, but we talked a lot about him here on the pod on Monday. My guest on Monday, Stephanie Fu, talked about how Dr. Hom helped her through a case of complex PTSD, which she developed after some intense and prolonged child abuse and neglect. As I mentioned on Monday, while we're using the word trauma in these episodes this week, a word which some of you will relate to intimately and others will not see yourselves in at all, this week's episodes are, are actually in the broadest sense about how to live with the hardest things that have ever happened to you. This, by the way, is the last episode of our month-long mental health reboot series in which every week we paired mental health memoirists with expert scientists and researchers. We'll get back to our more willy-nilly programming style come Monday. Heads up before we dive in here, there's some profanity in this episode. If you want a bleeped version, you can head over to our website or over to the 10% Happier app. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I gotta tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. 
Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first... 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Dr. Jacob Hom, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a real honor. It's a pleasure to have you on. I guess I'd be interested to start by hearing a little bit about you. How did you get into this line of work? Why? When I was a kid, I used to tell my mom that I was going to go into a monastery. And I'm a Korean-born immigrant. My mother's a North Korean refugee, and my father's from South Korea. And we came here when I was three years old. And, you know, we're like your typical blue-collar, working-class Korean family. And I did well in school. I got into an Ivy League school. And then I would still say, like, Mom, I'm going to join a monastery after college. And she'd be like, okay, whatever. And then one day I was like, Mom, why don't you care? Like, I'm your oldest son, and you're spending a lot of money on my education. And then she said this really weird story that's entertaining, so I'm going to tell you. It's not because I believe it. When I was born in Korea, she said that this monk just walked into our home and was just like wandering around the home. And she said, can I help you with something? And he said, there's this weird ghostly, apparitional, cloudy thing above your house. I'm trying to figure out what it is. And then he saw me and he said, oh, that's why. And then he said, what was your birth dream about him? Because Korean people have birth dreams about their children and 
And then she said, I was climbing a mountain and it crumbled and I start to fall and the mountain collapsed into my belly and I knew I was pregnant. And he said, oh, he's going to be a mountain of a man in some way, like a great man, but he's going to be of weak constitution. So give me some string and I'll pray for his health. So it wasn't a scam. He just wanted string. And then a few days later, a nun came by and same thing happened. And they also said, don't ever tell him the story because it's going to go to his head. (laughs) And so she did tell me and it did kind of mess with me a little bit. But I've always had this sense of wanting to join the monastery, do something spiritual. And then I went to Brown. I was a religious studies major. I double majored in psychology. And I just painted the rest of my time because at Brown, there's no core curriculum. And then I learned about the Bodhisattva. And I also met some fantastic therapists. And the whole point of the Bodhisattva is that They can reach enlightenment and leave this world, but they turn around and see the suffering of other people and they turn around and like help other people reach enlightenment. And so that was a higher moral calling than going to the monastery. And being a psychologist was a way to still have a doctor after my name so that I could be, you know, the ideal doctor, lawyer, son of an immigrant family. And I thought that there were some really creative people in the field that I had met, some of my professors. I thought I could be happy doing a life like that, where therapy becomes an art form. And so I could fulfill the creative part of me too. And so I feel like I'm a contemplative in disguise doing trauma work. And I do trauma work because trauma is the only diagnosis in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, that actually acknowledges that most of our mental illness comes from suffering. And if you know the research about trauma, then you realize that so many of the disorders, the mental health disorders, are actually symptomatic of trauma. It's a more primal cause than some of the biological explanations for psychiatric disorders that we have. So it just became a convergence of all these interests. How do you define trauma? Well, the ones that I really care about in my work is actually moment to moment, terror and fear, and early childhood stuff. I was an early mother-infant researcher And the kind of trauma that gets often neglected in our society is actually the moment-to-moment neglect and abuse and fear children experience from a very early age. Most people focus on like the big T traumas, the disasters, the car accidents, the physical abuse. But even if you think about children who have like foster care or like violence, I always wonder about what their first two years of life were. That's where the roots of a lot of relational traumas get laid down. And that's what I feel like I can work through and help people with in the therapy that I practice. I guess the question that I hope this isn't inappropriate that's coming to mind is if somebody's experiencing fear and terror on a moment-to-moment basis between zero and two at the hands of their parents or caregivers, I guess getting over it is not the right expression, but is that workable and how? Yeah, that's a huge question. That would be a lecture in itself. I have seen it be worked through. The key term that I haven't found a good layman's term for is reawakening the capacity for mentalization. And mindfulness actually is a very close overlap to mentalization. But the term literally just means knowing that the other person has a mind and knowing that I have a mind and being curious about what's happening in your mind, as well as being curious about what's happening in my mind. 
So since the original wound for somebody who's been abused as a child is a relational wound, in other words, it's your relationships through no fault of your own are jacked up, then these people carry this sort of inability to relate successfully into the rest of their lives. Yeah, and I would add to it that what's really screwed up is that as a baby, the only way to deal with fear and terror is to run towards your caregivers. They're supposed to protect you. You scream out, hoping that they'll come to your rescue. But if they're the ones who are hurting you, then it puts you in a terrifying loop where you want to run from them. But at the same time, your body tells you to go find them. And then you spend the rest of your days trying to figure out how to resolve that paradox. And so this is where children learn to mute their own feelings. They learn that they have to be the one to take care of other people, that their feelings aren't as important as the other person. Yeah, you start to um, lose touch with yourself. And your contention is that this is treatable. Yeah, it's a lifelong process. But I've seen a lot of people get a lot better and through many different ways, not just therapy in the way that I practice it. What was the word again? Mentalization? Yeah. It strikes me that you don't have to have endured, I think the term of art is ACEs, adverse childhood events. Correct. In order to have trouble with mentalization, empathy seems to be on the decline. Yes. Globally. Exactly. I don't know if it's on the decline. What I've been seeing is that the whole world survived terrifying world wars in the 40s, 50s, or whatnot. And our generation is suffering the emotional ramification of that. Most of my patients are survivors of the Holocaust, survivors of World War I, II, Chinese Cultural Revolution, Korean War, and slavery and all the other kinds of horrible things that we do to each other. And what that does to the first generation is that it makes them focus only on physical survival and getting money, getting wealth, like the tiger parent idea. And at the cost of emotional intelligence, emotional understanding, it's too dangerous to know what you're feeling and you don't have time for it. And then the, the next generations, once physical security and safety is secured, then they start to have the luxury of being able to complain about the fact that they're emotionally neglected. And then they want to work that through with their children. And so I think it takes generations for us to recover from the devastation of these global wars that we've experienced. I wonder whether it's all tied back to trauma or whether there are other aspects of modern life that drive us further into ourselves. I mean, I thought I've read, and we'll check this afterwards, I think I've read that empathy is on the decline. I know self-centeredness is on the rise. I've seen those data. So in a world where capitalism enforces a kind of individualism, where social media puts us in a position of building our own personal brand all the time, where polarization, political or otherwise, encourages us to dehumanize people with whom we disagree. It seems like this capacity for mentalization, understanding that other people have complex minds of their own, is under assault, trauma or no trauma. I absolutely agree with that. This is where I'm a bad podcast guest because I don't want to speak in generalizations about what's happening in the world because I feel 
like I don't have a pulse on it necessarily because I'm my whole day is sitting with one person in front of me in a quiet room, not having a pulse on what's happening in society. And the only thing that I can have an impact on is the person in front of me. That society and other people deal with the larger social issues. This is where you and I are different because I'm always willing to opine on shit I know nothing about, so. <laughs> yeah, and here's another reason why I don't go there. With my patients, I find that it becomes a defense against inner knowing. It's Freud's defense of intellectualization. And so I often, whenever I hear it, I immediately like try to shut it down with my patients. People, instead of looking at their stuff, start coming up with concepts and grand theories as a kind of defense. Exactly. They're like, I'm lonely, but isn't everyone lonely? Isn't the world making us all lonely? What am I going to do with that? So talk to me about your approach, given the population you're treating. How would you describe your approach and how did you come up with it? One, it's not anything new. I don't want to somehow claim that it's my approach. I think I do it in a weird way. I do therapy in a weird way, and I probably give more credit to classic psychodynamic, psychoanalytic theories and approaches, which are out of favor in this time of like cognitive behavioral therapy or like what they call third wave therapies. But I guess technically I would fit mostly in a modern relational approach when <laughs> no one's going to know what that means. But in the old old days with Freud initially and most psychodynamic psychotherapies, it's a one-person therapy, meaning that if you're my patient, then anything that happens, it's all your stuff. And if you find me deplorable or in some positive way, respectable, then it's because it's your stuff that's getting projected onto me. I'm neutral. I have no personhood in the room. But in a two-person psychology, we acknowledge that the experience is co-created. Like my stuff gets intermingled with your stuff and then we co-create stuff. And the goal of this kind of therapy is just to wonder about what's happening between us with as much like open curiosity as possible, which goes back to mindful practice again. It's like this compassionate curiosity about what is happening between us. And when you can really do that, there's really this poignant knowing and seeing of the other that happens that does break through the lack of empathy and the silos that we are creating in, in our modern society. It becomes deeply moving, actually, to work. So it sounds like you're an active participant here, not examining somebody's symptoms and pathologies from a clinical remove. It's uh, more complicated. I feel like I have like seven layers of processing happening while I'm doing therapy. There's still the clinical brain that's thinking what's happening inside of them, what's happening inside of me, and what's happening between us. And then there's another part of me that's just like feeling what's happening in my body, trying to wonder whether it'd be useful for me to like express that and be spontaneous. There's the red flag, my spider senses that are going off at the same time, trying to check that I'm not doing anything inappropriate or unethical or un unprofessional. It's really quite like an exhausting thing to be doing it this way. And I like it. I, I want to be reactive and fly out the seat of my pants feeling. I don't want to know what's going on. I don't want to have a script. I don't want to have a sense of what's going to happen. I'd rather like be surprised at the moment. And then it becomes like joyful and playful and exciting. 
First of all, I love getting the glimpse into your mind as you're doing therapy. That's fascinating. The thought that came up for me was that on top of being exciting and joyful and rewarding, it might also be a form of therapy for you too, because you're learning about yourself. Absolutely. It's undeniable. Yeah. I'm not perfect. I'm just another human being trying to like figure out how to live my life. And I don't claim otherwise. And I make mistakes. I fumble. My heart breaks. My heart aches in therapy. I once told a man, like, I can get you as far as I've gotten. <laughs> you know, there's, there's this man who had a severe trauma history. And he was like, can you fix me, doc? And I said, I can only take you as far as I've gotten myself. And then you're going to have to find someone else. Or you're going to have to teach me something new, too. And it becomes totally co-created. What's that roomy phrase? We're all walking each other home. Mm. Have you experienced trauma yourself? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's intergenerationally passed down. I think my maternal grandfather died on a landmine escaping North Korea. Korea was under Japanese occupation for 50 years before the Korean War. My parents had very little to eat. My mother was in a refugee housing in Seoul. My father was a drill sergeant in Korea, which made him have a temper. And so his anger could be scary sometimes. My mother was depressed, so she disappeared on me. I remember moments when she would psychologically disappear on me as a little boy. I grew up in Texas in the 70s. The KKK still marched. One of my earliest memories is a drive-by racial slur against me when I was like four years old. I've witnessed gun violence between Korean and Vietnamese gangs as a high school student. I have like probably three or four aces if you're going back to that adverse childhood event scale. So you're able to make the empathic leap quite naturally into the seat that your patients are occupying. We have to, I think. Yeah, that's the only way to do therapy right. Trauma is an act of violence against relational connection, against feeling human, against feeling like you deserve to be loved and that loving is a good thing and it's a safe thing. And so I think that that has to be reawakened. And sometimes it happens through the therapy relationship with, in constraint, obviously. It has to be ethically done. But I feel like I have to feel things for my patients or else I'm doing something wrong or else I'm defending or I'm colluding with their avoidance and defense. You know that polishing the mirror metaphor in Buddhism, remember? Like from the Wu Wei. I feel like I've taken that into my own practice where I polish the mirror of my heart so that it becomes a tool for resonating and harmonizing with the other person's heart. And it also becomes an invitation for their heart to start humming again because trauma shuts it down. Let me see if I got it. And I'm drawing a little bit upon my conversation with Stephanie Fu, whose episode will have aired on Monday or two days before yours. And just to say to listeners, you, I encourage you to listen to it. You don't have to have listened to it in order to keep going with this. What I got from everything you've said and from talking to her, it's like you're kind of teaching people how to be human again, because there's something that shuts down when in your relational capacity, relationships being the most important currency of homo sapiens, and it's something that shuts down quite understandably in a situation where the people who are supposed to be caring for you are abusing you. And so you just, somebody's got to teach you how to do it. Your parents weren't there to teach you how to do it. And so that's something you can help people learn for themselves. 
Yeah, as soon as I heard that, my first reaction was to say that I teach them how to be both exquisitely human and all too human at the same time. Meaning like, it's like us at our best. When we are humming both with our heads and our hearts alive and resonating with other people. That's the exquisite part. And then the all too human part is whenever we have foibles and fumbles and we love ourselves despite those things. Yeah, so at our best, we're right there paying attention to what's happening right now, attuned to the other person and tuned to ourselves at the same time. But we can't be at our best all the time. So when we screw up, which is inevitable, can we be okay enough with that? Yes, exactly. What are the tools you teach people? Because they can't be with you all the time in your office. They need to go out into the world and relate to other people. So I'll put on the table in part why I'm asking this question, which is I don't have any patients because I'm not a mental health professional. P-A-T-I-E-N-T-S. I don't have any P-A-T-I-E-N-C-E either. But in this case, I don't have any people in my care, but I have an audience that I care about. And so I always want to give them things that can help them do their lives better. And so that guides some of my questions to you. So just put that on the table that if you're trying to figure out why I'm saying whatever I'm saying, that's usually what's operating in my mind. So having said that, I'm curious because I believe quite strongly having spoken to Stephanie, having had the life experiences I've had and having only spent a half hour with you thus far, that what you're teaching is applicable to people who will never end up in your office and don't have ACEs or may not have experienced trauma. It's universal. That's really what I believe. And so I'd love to hear a little bit from you about what kind of skills do you teach? I uh, bristle at the word skills and tools. And I think it's either because I've haven't done the work of like being able to crystallize what I do, which is really hard for me to do. It's like asking what's the best move in chess. <laughs> There's so many answers to this. And I only know the answer as I get to know the person. But there are some general things that I'm always trying to get at, which is like, are you a whole person? Is there like flow? Or are you compartmentalized? Are you blocked? Can you be poignant? I love that word, but it's hard to describe it. It's just like, can you move me? Can you move yourself? And for me, that represents an integration of head, heart, gut, body, spirit. And so I know where I'm trying to get people, but with each person, I don't know how they're going to need to get there. And in the room, I guess what I do is that I try to look for moments whenever I see disconnection, dissociation, or whatever. And I try to bring attention to that and to wonder what's going on in that. And so the only tool I really practice is this mindful curiosity, but it's not just mindfulness. It's actually like loving curiosity. It has to be done with such like, oh, what's going on here? You have to love it like you're two-year-old. You can do no wrong and you just want to understand what's happening right now. And that's a really hard thing for people to do. I think there's so much judgment around that. A hard thing for people to do for themselves or for other people or for both? Both. This compartmentalization, the lack of empathy that you're referring to, we definitely aren't empathetic with ourselves. We're really mean to ourselves and harsh and judgmental and renounce parts of ourselves. This is partly why I liked Buddhism way better than Western religions, because it wasn't about getting rid of the evil side. It was about seeing the whole self and accepting the good and bad. 
I'm going to ask you an unfairly broad question. It's going to put you back in the chess mode, unfortunately. So you can mindfully and compassionately slap my wrist if you want. But what can one do in order to be a whole person, have flow, achieve poignancy and integration? What can you do? One would be to start looking at yourself and seeing how well you can tolerate that. Like, not literally, but metaphorically, stand naked in front of a mirror and see what your reaction to that is. Are you repulsed? Do you move away from it? Just observe it. And then if there is some repulsion and stuff, then try to wonder about that as well. Put that in front of the mirror. It's very much like parts work, like best represented in internal family systems. I know you had an interview with Dick Schwartz before, which I had listened to, and I loved that interview. I share that with all my colleagues. I loved it because you actually put him to the ringer and you didn't just like go along with it. And you see Dick having to like go into his tool bag and try to come up with different ways to reach you. It kind of put it on the ground, like you're going to struggle with people with this stuff. Even Dick Schwartz struggles with trying to apply this stuff. Anyway, so it's a lot like looking at all your parts, observing what comes up, trying to look at that with love and kindness as well. Know that each part has a role and it's trying to love you the best way it can, even if it seems perverse in the way it does that. That's really hard. Even that alone takes a lot of time. And it just becomes a muscle of awareness that you have to practice and a muscle of like cultivating love in the midst of the potential for fear and shame. Maybe that's the most important thing that I've discovered. I'm obsessed with this idea of suffering. Does it have a point? And what do you do with it? Suffering's a given in life. And our task in life is to learn to love in the midst of great suffering. You've brought me to a point that I, I love when I get to this point in interviews, which is that I have 75 questions. And I'm trying to line the planes up on the runway. Nice. So just note to listeners, I know he said a lot of interesting stuff there, and I promise you I'm going to, to the best of my ability, loop back and get to all of it. So coming up, we'll do just that. We'll loop back and try to get at all of the stuff Dr. Hom just brought up, including what it is we're supposed to do with our suffering and what he means by the word love. We'll also talk about whether or not we have to love ourselves before we learn to love others, the difference between Kairos and Kronos, and why he likes talking about the Incredible Hulk. It's all coming up after this. The weather's getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping 
on your order and 365 day returns. That's quince.com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So let me just go back to the beginning of the metaphor of standing naked in front of the mirror. There are a lot of ways to do this. You know, therapy is one if you've got a good therapist. Another is meditation. What do you recommend for people who are willing, who are gutsy enough to actually do that thing? You're going back to the chest move question. I would say to sink into wherever your body's leaning you towards. There's so many different ways. Don't stress about it. The other thing that I would add, use the other person as a mirror. Find a loved one who's a great listener or become a great listener for the other. That'll help you become a great listener for yourself. Like you said, that therapy can be healing for the therapist. Learn to be a good therapist for others. And that way you'll cultivate compassion for yourself too. And say, oh, we're all so human, so frail, and we have all these idiosyncrasies and failings. It's okay. I can still love this person despite their failings. This person being another person, this person being you. Yeah, it's all the same. Where do you fall on this question of, do you need to learn to love yourself before you can love other people? I think it's moment to moment. The answer depends on what the moment requires. It's a virtuous or vicious cycle. So again, like I won't have an answer because I just need to see the person in front of me and see what they're struggling with and then nudge them in the right direction oh, maybe the way that I would reframe the question then would be, is fear coming up in such a way that it's blocking your capacity to feel connected to the other person or to yourself? And that's another key idea that I think that trauma as a field has really helped teach me is that there are these two competing selves, the fear survival self, which is very ego protective and creates divisions. And it's like what's running rampant in our society right now, the othering energy, and the dehumanizing energy. And then there's the open-hearted, curious, complex, and can tolerate ambiguity, doesn't need a black and white answer. That state of mind, which is harder to define. And it's like present moment. It's like Kairos versus Kronos as well. And so it's always the question of like, what state of mind am I in right now? That's a better question than what comes first, loving yourself or loving the other. Are you in an open state of mind? Because then when you're in that open state of mind, Loving yourself and loving other become one and the same. Who are Kairos and Kronos? Greek terms for time. Kronos being scheduled time 
that creates rushing and creates demands. And then kairos is existential time, being with another person, ideally. Hopefully we achieve this where you and I, are, we lose time and we're just like in our heads together and we're getting to know each other in a deep way. A word that you've used quite a bit and has come up repeatedly in this conversation and it's on my list of things to ask you is love. What do you mean by love? Because the word is loaded. I talk about this a lot. It's a loaded term and people can go right to, you know, Tom Cruise saying you complete me in a rom-com, but you could also think about it in a broader, more capacious way, a more down-to-earth way. So what do you mean when you say love? I don't know. <laughs> I appreciate your honesty. Now let me try to walk back my vagueness. One, it's I love my voice so much. It spills out of my heart. It's a physical thing. I'm like oozing with oxytocin whenever I'm holding my boy. And then with some of my patients, I feel similarly. And it's just like this... There's something divine about it, spiritual. It's just like stunned in amazement at their beauty and their humanness and their foibles. And it's like a mix of experience. Sometimes it's just a resonance with another person and a wishing them well, rooting them on. I don't know. It's just whenever I feel that my heart is somehow connected to theirs, maybe that's the best I can give you. I try not to use ideas. I know that it feels like my heart is pulsing. We have very different jobs, so I have no choice but to use ideas. So let me try one on you and see if your heart pulses with it. I kind of think of love as, you know, anything that fits within the human capacity to care. It can be romantic love. It can be the strings come in in a rom-com. It can be parenting, your boy, your son, my son. But it can also just be somebody I see on the street who fell down or anybody I see on the street anywhere. It can also just be my desire for Vladimir Putin, who I disagree with vehemently, to be a happier person so he stops being such a jerk. Yeah, I like all those. The thing that came to mind when you were talking was a woman that I just met and she had a hard moment in a training that we were in. And I saw her little girl, and using parts metaphors, and I was so proud of her little girl for standing up for herself. And I just fell in love with her in that moment for how brave she was to like uh, stand up for herself. And at the end of our training, I just started to hug her and I just told her I loved her. And I had very complex feelings about her, but you're right. It was that I cared about her as a human being. Do you ever have trouble mustering the love where you're having a bad day or you have a patient who's just annoying? Oh, of course. Yes. Yeah, that's really telling actually. And then I inquire about what is happening between us, that this is happening. So you'll say, I'm having trouble feeling warmth for you right now? Whew, that's a tough one. Sometimes I have said things like that when I know that they can hear it in the way that I mean, where we've done enough work where we're just processing what's happening between us. But other people get deeply offended and walk out of my office. So it's a really high-risk thing, but I've been able to use things like that successfully. One of the very first ways that I learned this, there's another anecdote. There was a woman who had come in really late at night and she was talking and I yawned. And then she said, you did it again. I said, what did I do? And she said, you yawned. I go, I know. And then I said, I'm so bored right now, which was a huge risk. And she said, me too. <laughs> and then she started to cry. And then she said, you know what? I don't want to talk today. I don't want to say anything real. So I've been like just talking around you, hoping that you wouldn't notice 
she was tearing up. And I said, I notice now, and I'm not bored now. You're finally here. And it became resonant again. Yeah, I haven't done a lot of Zen training, but it reminds me a little bit of hearing stories about Zen masters doing unconventional things to jar their students back into the spontaneity and freshness that is so valued in the Zen tradition. Yes, exactly. I don't know if you and Stephanie talked about this, but one of the most controversial things that she talks about in her book about our therapy is that I call her stupid. And someone on Amazon like remarked on how inappropriate that was. But that was a spontaneous thing that emerged between us. And part of me could be deeply troubled by how unprofessional and unethical that is. But that's not me looking in front of the mirror again, like in my nakedness and trying to love myself in that. And so I was, I've been thinking a lot about where that comes from. And part of it is that I would say those things when I saw her suffering and she was like getting lost in her suffering. And I'd call her remarks like, oh, I'm never going to find love or, you know, those kinds of things that people say in the scientific term. It's like a depressogenic thought. So I would say, oh, you're being so stupid. That's so stupid. <laughs> but what I was feeling was just like this compassion for her suffering. And part of me, I think, was uncomfortable with how much I was like sending love to her in that moment. Like, I wanted to just hold her and just be like, oh, it's okay, it's okay. But I'm not allowed to. I'm figuring out how to deal with my own energy. And so I used this word that kind of divides us, but it's said with affection still, and she could tell, so she didn't mind. And then even in the audiobook version, she plays a part where I say stupid, and she goes, oh, that's twice today. I earned stupid today. And I go, oops, did I say that out loud? I didn't, I didn't even notice. And we're joking and it's like a way for us to bond and like come back into the moment instead of her being lost in her shit spiral or whatever I call it. Yeah, she called it the shit spot or something like that. That's your term. Yeah. Well, it's my patient's term and it was so perfectly descriptive. It just stuck. I was laughing, I hope not inappropriately, when you when you were relating the story of calling Stephanie stupid, uh, not because I think she's stupid. There may be people in the audience who are upset because I'm siding with you here. But I, the reason why I was laughing is that that's the dynamic that's at play between me and my meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who often uses unconventional techniques when I come to him with some big story of my own suffering. I remember one time I was telling him how writing is this big it's so hard. Uh, I write books and my suffering is operatic and blah, blah, blah. And he said, this idea you have that you need to suffer to write is just you being stupid. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what did that do to you when you heard that? I thought it was great. It just knocked me out of, you know, it's, it's all about, as the Buddhists say, skillful means. You have to know who your student or in your case, the patient is. Are they confident enough in your affection? I'm assuming here that that's the deal. Are they confident enough in your affection so that they know that it's actually playful and meant to help you and jar you out of your story? And so I also come from a family where verbal abuse was our love language. For birthdays, we roasted each other, and that was how we showed affection. And I use the term verbal abuse here in a jocular way. There was no real verbal abuse. So I guess Joseph intuits this, gets that it will work well with me and does it, and I'm assuming that's what's going on with you. Exactly. Yeah. And what I would also add that if for any reason it actually hurt her, then it becomes great fodder for growth and healing. Because then for her to feel safe enough to say like, hey, fuck you, like, I didn't like that right then. And for me to be able to say like, oh, tell me more about that instead of like, well, you know, I meant it this way or like get defensive to just like 
be curious about this new thing that just emerged for some reason. The therapy takes on a life of its own. It becomes another joyful, creative experience. Another thing you said earlier was, does suffering have a point? And you said that you're still working on this question, but an answer that's come up in your head is that the point of suffering is to learn how to love in the midst of great suffering. Am I recapitulating your point with some degree of accuracy? Yes. And that suffering's inevitable, like the first noble truth. I keep thinking about birth and pregnancy and how painful and life-threatening and terrible the process of creating another loved human being is. And in the midst of this terrible pain that threatens life, something that we love so much comes from it. And so it's almost like God or the universe or whatever stamped into our birth process the point of life itself. And you can apply that to yourself. We suffer so much at our own hands. Can we use these moments of pain to learn how to have a, a modicum of warmth vis-a-vis -vis our own the difficult parts of our own personality and to see them as just characters that are trying to help us, perhaps unskillfully. And that if you do that with love, then you birth yourself to a higher level of development. And so I guess this brings us full circle to the question I asked early on, which is even for people with ACEs, even for people who were abused by the people who were supposed to take care of them, this personal development is still on offer. You see it in your office. People can learn to live with the worst stuff that's ever happened to them. Yeah, I, I've once said this really perverse thing that trauma becomes a gift, even though I would, I hate that I say that because I would never wish anyone to be traumatized, but it can actually become a propelling force for personal growth. There is such a, like in the academic field, there's that term post-traumatic growth to actually name that that happens. So were it not for these horrible things that happened to you, you might not be in the therapist's office. You might not be on that meditation retreat. You might not be reading whatever book you were listening to this podcast. If it wasn't for your panic attack, you would not have changed your life and done something. Well, however, this is meaningful for you. You made your life more meaningful because of your panic attack. Yes. And I, I think it's worth perhaps now getting at one of your key points, which is, and I think I'm quoting you back to you here as I look at my notes here, that it's not getting rid of trauma, it's replacing fear and trauma with love and understanding and openness. So you're not trying to fix, quote unquote, anything. Yeah, that's right. I don't have words. It's more of this, I just saw an image of like expansiveness and openness Maybe sometimes if I have put words to it, it's like uh, to carry your trauma with grace, whatever that means. As you talked about openness before, that just brings me back to the Kairos Kronos thing. And now I'm going to ask one of these questions that mildly annoy you because I find it so compelling, this idea that, you know, there are these two modes we have. One would be open and playful and curious. And the other is, you know, all amygdala flight fight, freeze, fixed, you know, like not open. So here's the annoying part. Given all of your experience, and I know everybody's in different situations at different moments and it's chess, et cetera, et cetera. But what are some possible ways we might explore to boost our Kairos quotient and reduce that of Kronos? My answer is going to be repeating myself. And actually, I want to 
use you as an example. Because throughout this interview, you have been exemplifying this mentalizing, mindful state. Because you said, I'm going to annoy you a little bit, but it's my job. And when you say it's my job, it's because you're having in mind your audience. And, and you're saying, like, now I'm at the exciting part because I have 75 questions. That's a mentalizing of your own self and registering where you are. So you're doing this incredibly complex thing. When I said like, I have like seven layers of process happening, you as well, I can tell that you're tending to everyone, me, you, and your audience at the same time. And that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. And my guess is that you must have cultivated that somehow. It's not easy, but that would be it. I would want everyone to keep cultivating that capacity. How'd you do it? <laughs> well, I've been, I'm old, uh, 50, so I've, I've been doing journalism. We're the same age. <laughs> okay, so we're both old, but you look great. Yeah, I've been a journalist since I was 22. And so I, I, that, and then, the, you know, 12 years of meditation and lots of therapy. And so it's work. And I will say, it's not uncommon for me to walk out of this little studio in a closet in the bedroom I share with my wife and be in a pretty foul mood because I'm burning so many calories doing this work that I don't often have a lot of bandwidth left when I leave. Maybe that being a little unfair. There's some, many times I walk out totally invigorated, but it does take a lot of energy. I can't do it all the time. Yeah, it's our best selves. But then we get hangry and sleep deprived and irritable. And we just flow in and out of that. Why do you talk about the Hulk? I'm a child psychologist, technically. And so I need to figure out ways to describe things in a way that's digestible for my patients and for the young ones. But I was really struck by the fact that he is the perfect metaphor for our survival brain. The Hulk was an abused child, abused by his father, saw his father kill his mother. So... Hulk is actually just survival brain on gamma radiation. And the reason why it's such a great metaphor is because when we are in survival brain, our capacity for complex thinking disappears. Our capacity for language, especially for men, disappears, which is exactly what happens to Hulk. He only sees threat or safety. Are you going to trust or no trust? And he can't use words to explain himself. And the other thing that is incredibly important to know especially if you're working with kids with trauma, is that if you try to discipline the Hulk, if you tell the Hulk, if you throw another tank, you're going to get a timeout, the Hulk's going to get really mad and experience that as a threat, and it's going to make him even bigger and stronger and rage even harder. So I'm really combating our old ways of using forceful energy to get kids to act right. That's a huge trigger for me because I was one of those kids who was always acting out and getting detentions, like multiple detentions in a row because I wouldn't stop raging. And the only thing you can do is to give Hulk time to calm down. And then the last thing that's so important is that Banner hates being the Hulk. Like once he's calm, he looks at all the devastation he's wreaked and he's he just hates what he's done. And all people with trauma hate themselves. They hate themselves for not having stopped violence from happening to them. And they hate themselves for all the ways that they try to cope with the trauma that they experienced, the drug addiction and the acting out and all, avoidance and all the impact on their lives. So self-loathing is a key experience for people with trauma. And the Hulk is not a bad guy. The Hulk is one of our favorite superheroes. Kids love him. 
So it reinforces the idea that you have to start to learn to respect and admire the Hulk because he's served an important function in your life for a long time. He's kept you safe. He's gotten you this far. So don't make the Hulk's violence with violence because uh, when you shoot the Hulk, he only gets stronger, angrier. And you, I think, are saying this in relationship to our own inner Hulk and the Hulks of other people. Absolutely, yeah. So with children, for example, my son's seven, he doesn't actually throw that many temper tantrums, but when he does, a time out is better than a huge punishment right there in the moment. And a time out done with the right energy. Right. Son, you're really upset. I think it's important for us both to calm down. Because my favorite story was that uh, an eight-year-old boy used to tell his dad, Dad, you're hulking out. You need to calm down. And so it levels the playing field. We all have hulks in us. And so you might say to your son, I'm starting to get dysregulated. I'm getting really upset. I think I need to take a step back and calm down. Do you need to take a step back and calm down? Or you might say to him, it looks like you're too upset. Why don't you take a break and we'll revisit this when you're calmer. It really helps you to track whether or not he's Hulk, because you can't reason with Hulk, or he's like Banner. I was talking right before this interview with my executive coach, Jerry Colonna, who's actually been on the show a couple of times, and he likes talking about the Hulk as well. And he was using, without naming, the internal family systems model, this model, uh, the Dick Schwartz idea of kind of naming your the various characters in, that are competing for salience in your mind at any given moment. And he was saying, well, think of the Hulk, your capacity for anger, as being part of the Avengers. The Avengers, you know, Thor and Iron Man, Captain America, they're all like working to shave down the Hulk's various tendencies and they're working in unison. It's not always perfect, but there is a way to put the Hulk in context. Hmm. You mean to be able to channel his energy for good and not for rampant destruction? Yeah, and to note that there are other parts of you that might be able to calm down the Hulk when he's raging and perhaps not taking you in the right direction. And the way that I would do that is to first honor the Hulk. Say, you're up because you think I need you. And I, I know you love me so much that you're willing to destroy the whole world for me. And then you'd be saying... I have other ideas for how we can get this done. I have other strategies. Are you okay with that? Can we let Iron Man try first? You have to make sure that he feels empowered and in a collaborative relationship with you. And that's why I'm slightly disagreeing with the notion of just trying to keep him contained because it has an, a little bit of an adversarial relationship to it. Yes. Jerry, I'm sorry. I'm probably mangling what he meant, but... I took from it that, you know, the other Avengers, they love the Hulk. They're really happy to have him on their team, but, you know, they're all working in unison to bring out the best in each other. Yeah, and to achieve the same goal. That helps, too, to know what you're trying to accomplish. I wish you had your podcast on video because people can't read your face. It really helps. (laughs) (laughs) What are you reading right now? There's a lot of playfulness and kindness coming out of it. You're still trying to do your work, but you're... Yeah, it's not all hard. You're not laboring in a hard way. Do you know what I mean? I appreciate that. (laughs) 
I think we are going to start releasing the video eventually. Nice. <laughs> not for that reason. Not, not because I'm I will be uh, trying to present myself as some master who you get to see at work because mostly the camera will not be on me. But I appreciate what you're saying. I'll, I'll tell you what's going on for me. Usually that I'm trying to simultaneously think about where we could go next while also listen closely enough. I'm sure this is what you do in therapy. I do less of what you have to do. So you have a harder job because I don't have to direct where it goes next. I can just follow. But then the hard part comes whenever I want to say something that's risky. Right. You use a phrase in describing your, I'm going to be careful with this word. You didn't like me describing you as having an approach, but your style, let's say, uh, you use the phrase, the nurturance of being known. Can you unpack that? Hmm. I think that the primary injury of trauma is that you're not seen. You yourself don't matter. And so part of what I'm trying to give people is a sense that they matter moment to moment. I don't know. Do I need to say more? <laughs> I'll say more, but it's me quoting you back to you. The place a therapist wants to get to is the place where there's no need to say anything else. For the therapist, it's just holding, hugging the patient with your gaze, just compassion and love, silence. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that when we're at our best, we don't need to be therapists to provide that to other people. Absolutely not. I want to get out of the therapy office. I feel like I'm in my generative years in, in our 50s where I've learned enough that it's time for me to start sharing what I've learned. And what I've learned about therapy is just about learning how to love exquisitely. Coming up, I'm going to ask Dr. Hum what he means by love exquisitely, the words he just used. And we'll also talk about whether the word trauma is being overused these days, as some people allege. We'll also circle back to his thesis about the profound importance of what he calls compassionate curiosity after this. It's spring and that means it's graduation season and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. Uh, they showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&M's, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&M's, uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control. So your house or your apartment 
or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs. And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Love exquisitely. What do you mean by that? To hold another person in their fullness, to really see them and to know them, to not judge them. It's that empathy thing again. I can hear listeners saying, how do I do that? I find myself in conversations and I'm itching to look at my phone or, you know, commit a homicide or whatever. Great. Okay, so looking at your phone, then I would say something is happening in the interaction that feels deplorable that you want to move away from. So what is that thing that you're trying to move away from? And then try to understand why you need to move away from that. Is it because it's a part of you that you haven't learned to accept yet? Or just something that you find reprehensible? And then what do you do with that? Do you love this person enough to say like, I really don't like that you're doing this? Sometimes there's this conflict in us that I wanna say what you're doing is not good for you, but I wanna respect your own autonomy. And, and so instead I just have to like check out and look at my phone. And I would say, take the risk of leading with love or trying to like manifest love with good intention. And some people forgive that if they know where you're coming from. And then if you're experiencing homicidal rage, then I find that to be an incredibly loving thing to experience sometimes because the stories that you hear, the trauma therapists are outrageous. And sometimes the only proper response is to say like, that is horrible. Like, I'm so pissed that this happened to you. And that becomes an expression of love and honoring and acknowledging and putting the right emotion to the event. I know you don't like skills and tactics and all that stuff, but you actually just kind of gave us one, which is take risks. I probably know a lot of skills and tools, but I just find that whenever people start listing them, they come out empty and sterile. And so I'd rather people discover, like the way that you heard my story and then you said, oh, it's like taking risk then you packaged it for yourself in a way that it stuck for you. The thing about risk is it's scary. And at three o'clock on a Tuesday, I may not feel like taking a risk in a conversation with my wife. And then you slow down again and look at all the parts and say, like, okay, why am I not interested in doing this right now? And then you have to, depending on what your answer is, I wouldn't know what to say next. Yeah, again, like... You've just given me the beginning of the mid-game in chess, and I don't know where to go next. Right. Yes. I have. You don't know enough of where the board stands. Exactly. But it activates my curiosity about, like, let's break down what's happening and allow yourself to be curious about what this process is. Instead of being like, I'm a horrible husband, and I should be better or whatever, just like, oh, interesting. There's probably a good reason why I feel this way. Right. Yeah, so it's back to the Uber strategy, non-strategy, kairos approach of just openness, warmth, curiosity. Compassionate curiosity. Yeah, that's that's the banner we want to march behind. 
depending where you are on the chessboard at any given moment, there are maybe lots of strategies you could employ. But if you keep that flag in mind, you're marching in the right direction. Exactly. Keep it simple. Keep it goal-directed. Is there anything I should have asked but failed to ask? Hmm. I'm running through your needs and the needs of your audience. I don't know. Why did you just ask that right now? When we're getting toward the end of our time, I usually like to ask people that question because it opens people up to say, oh, yeah, I really wanted to talk about this and you haven't given me a chance to. Yeah, 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 I see. I didn't have an agenda. So I don't think I have any lingering things that I wanted to say. I'm really curious about whether or not this landed for you and how you received it. It absolutely landed. I mean, you said this a million times and it was only now that I was able to restate it, I think, with some clarity that the goal that you have is to help us, help yourself and all of us get into this Kairos mode, to realize that is a mode that's accessible (laughs) and do our best to find ourselves in that mode. And yes, there may be tools and tactics and skills, et cetera, et cetera. But that seems to be the most important point. That's what landed for me. I hope that's what you meant to have land. Yeah. And the responses that I have are like in the IFS model, Dick Schwartz talks about being self-energy. And you know that whenever you have these four C's, I forget. But I discovered those four C's as well, like calm, connected, curious, compassionate. And all the survival stuff seems to be more A, Aggressive, avoidant, assholey, maybe. That's another A. <laughs> Acquisitive. Yeah. Acquiring, accumulating, achieving. We do have a few more minutes, so I'll try something. I knew DJ mentioned that he mentioned to you, DJ, for the listeners, is an ace producer on this show, DJ Cashmere. And he, DJ, and I have noted of late there's been a kind of mini spate of articles in the New Yorker and the New York Times about trauma as a word and interesting people raising the question of whether we've had sort of linguistic creep here where the word is being used perhaps too often, as somebody said, if everything is trauma is anything. He mentioned, DJ did, that he mentioned this to you and you didn't really take the bait on it. But here I go, taking a risk and asking you now whether you have any thoughts on this line of argument. And before I answer the question, which I will, I would love for you to know why you're taking this risk. Yes, I know why. Why? Curiosity. Just curiosity. Well, okay, for sure curiosity. But I... This is maybe good, maybe bad, maybe both. Maybe I shouldn't be speaking in such dichotomous terms anyway. But I have a real allergy to boilerplate language, jargon. Yeah, me too. Because I'm not a mental health professional. I'm not a meditation guru. I'm just a journalist, right? A storyteller. And if I can add any value, it's to talk about things in the freshest possible way. I love that. Me too. And so I hear trauma all the time. There are many words I hear, all the self-love, love, love, I know, vulnerability, whatever, all these words which are incredibly important, but through repetition, they become rote and maybe empty and cliche. And so I'm curious whether trauma is in danger of falling into that category. And suddenly we are in complete agreement and 
I'm remembering the phrase take risk as your tool. It's the same thing. Like if it's said first, then it's empty and it's trite, just like trauma can become trite. But what we want is for people to feel the impact of the discovery of these ideas again and again. Even if they know it, it feels so good to be like, oh my God, yes, it's always this answer. Isn't that fun? It's always this. The question about whether trauma is becoming trite, my answer is just like, huh, I wonder who's using it wrong. I wonder who's tired of it. Why are they tired of it? And I can come up with a few ways in which people can use trauma to justify their behaviors or there's ways that they can wear it as a badge or people who are sick of it because they can tell that it's moving away from authenticity, where it becomes a barrier, it becomes another mask in a way. I'd be curious about when a person feels that way and why they feel both why they're using it as a weapon or as a tool to build walls and to distract or when they want to just like push it away. I think it's all because it's somehow compromising true authentic poignancy and the human connection. So the problem wouldn't be with trauma as a word. It might be if people are using the word to create walls. Yeah, to not be real. Yeah, and that I would agree with. That would be a problem. To be clear, I don't have a view on this. I just think it's interesting. I'm not taking sides here, if there are even sides. It's just more an interesting question that, yeah, I've noticed the word does get used a lot more and more, but I'm not like upset about that. Yeah, and I I know that it's been a good thing for the world to realize that yes. trauma is rampant. Yes. And Bessel van der Kolk's book has been on the New York Times bestseller list for many years now. And it's helping people understand their hurt more and to wonder about themselves. It's a useful framework to increase self-exploration and understanding of other people. Yes. Bessel van der Kolk is the author of a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And yes, he has very much helped improve public understanding of trauma. And I think the question that sometimes gets asked in return is, you know, where do we draw the line between trauma and just regular adversity? And it's an interesting question because what is regular adversity and how is it received by the person who's going through it? It seems very potentially complex. See, for me, the way that I would reframe that curiosity would be like, when do you need to make a division? Right. Who needs to make a division? Right. I guess the division might become important because there are, I'm just theorizing here, and I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about this, but there are people like Stephanie, where, Stephanie Fu, where we can, I think, largely agree that what she endured was something that I think most people would be comfortable saying, yeah, that's trauma. I mean, her parents abandoned her. There was all kinds of abuse from a very, very young age. But are there other people using the word trauma where, well, I don't know if everybody would agree that that's so adverse? First of all, there is actually an Amazon reviewer who said she's just being whiny. Not everyone agrees that what she experienced was trauma. Wow. Okay. Maybe all reasonable people, but who's deciding what's reasonable? And again, for me, when I heard that, I was like, what have you been through, my dear person? What can you not face yourself? Why do you have to have such a strong reaction to this story? Interesting. And then I forgot the rest of it, why the, the line needs to be made. Well, only that it would somehow have deleterious negative effects for people with quote-unquote real trauma. If everything's trauma, then are you 
it's somehow diminishing the power and importance and validity of people who have quote unquote real trauma. I would agree that the act of diminishing another person's experience can be harmful. But on the other hand, there are people who dramatize their experience and they use it in a relational moment to solicit empathy or outrage, but it's an avoidant thing. So again, like I don't have a general answer because I'm really curious about how it's being used in the moment and I try to figure that out. And there are some patients of mine who will cry and feels dramatic and feels like a solicitation of outrage instead of like a real in your pain and suffering experience. I guess where I'm taking this is that this question about trauma creep is checkers and real life is chess. Yeah, and the question of trying to figure out what it is, is survival brain, is chronos. It's the divisive black and white thinking. One of my favorite Naruto poems, I can't quote it because it's all about like the ocean and ask me why different things in the ocean do things. And it ends with the images of him waking up and he's naked, caught in the wind, in a net in the wind or something like that. And it, what it does to me is that it creates this experience of like open surrender, like being hurled into the universe naked, but enjoying the mystery, the complexity of that wonder and amazement. And I, that's where I want us to land. And in that love each other and, and see that each person's perspective adds radiance to this whole complexity of our experience. I get cheesy and wax weird. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> people, people are like, do you really talk like this in real life? Like, no. <laughs> I've had, this has been a pleasure. So I'm loving all your parts from this side of the Zoom call. Thank you. Yours as well. I can feel you. Yeah, you're having fun. If people, I suspect there will be not a few people who will hear this and may want to learn more about you. How, how can they do so? I have a blog that I rarely update. You can subscribe to a newsletter there. I am inundated with calls for therapy and I have like at least like a 40 person wait list, which would take like five to seven years to get through. So I'm not accessible and I find that to be painful. And that's why I want to do podcasts or something. I am trying my best to be discoverable, but it's going to take a while. Just to say one place where you are discoverable is Stephanie's book. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes, as well as your blog. And just to say, finally, thank you. It's such a pleasure to meet you. And you did a great job with this. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to Jacob Hom. That was great. One quick note before uh, I let you go here, a note about an opportunity to get involved in an exciting new TPH project. We're looking for listeners and 10% Happier app users who are interested in answering some questions about the challenges and benefits of their experiences with mindfulness and meditation. Participants may appear in a 10% Happier course or challenge in the future. All levels of experience are welcome if you might be interested contact us at casting at 10percent.com. That's casting at 10percent.com. Thanks as well to the folks who work so hard on this show. Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, Samuel Johns, and Jen Poyant. 
We also, I should say, get our audio engineering from the good folks over at Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus meditation from Diana Winston on self-criticism, self-judgment, and unworthiness. I suspect these are resonant themes, and for those of you for whom those themes do not resonate, I would like to borrow your mind permanently. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast, American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.